Well, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful Sunday, beautiful weather, and we're thankful for your presence. We have a nice crowd with us here today. We had a nice crowd as well in the uh, 8 o'clock worship, and as we've said before, I know you're all looking forward to, as much as I think they are as well, the, uh, the time coming. Hopefully, I think it's the first Sunday of June we have scheduled when we're all back together, all together under uh, one roof. Was, was it Easter last week? Was it two weeks ago? We had this huge crowd that was here, and it was just, it felt like our first really big crowd since, I guess, since everything had started, and everything started going uh, haywire. I, it won't, probably won't be that big on that first Sunday of June. Maybe it will. We'll certainly pray for that. But even if it's not, just knowing that we'll have everybody together under one roof will probably bring about a similar um, emotional response. So I know you're looking forward to that and praying that everything works out, that we can have that as much as uh, those at 8 o'clock are as well. So this morning, the sermon is, is part of our year-long theme that we're considering in various sermons all year long, uh, Love Your Neighbor. And as we said back in January when we started this, Alex and I both kind of pressed upon you this, the, the largeness of the theme, how broad it is and how easily you could take it into a variety of directions. It's not so narrow a topic that you're forced to just only preach two or three different kinds of sermons and then get a repetition of them 52 times throughout the course of the year. That'd be no fun for anybody. By now, you start to get bored of it. But it's such a big enough theme and it's a big enough, broad enough topic that you can really go in a lot of places with it and still kind of circle back around and see, oh, I can see how that has to do with my relationship with my neighbors, my need to love my neighbors. Well, the sermon this morning is, if you've got a pew bulletin or a bulletin that's on the table in the foyer, you saw the title. The title is, it's, it is what it is. The, the sermon is entitled, Preaching the Gospel in Five Seconds. Because you may only have a short amount of time to preach the gospel to your neighbors, and so you may only have five seconds to do it. So let's do it. Now, you'll be mindful of the, the ticker behind me. That's moving like double time, okay? So it takes like two whole cycles of a five-second countdown to get through a full five seconds. But all right, get ready. Here we go. Here it comes. You ready? You ready? Jesus died and rose for you. If you obey the gospel by dying and rising for him, then you can live with him forever. Did I do it? I think I did it. All right, please come now as we stand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something, though, if that was done? No. The idea is... Well, I'll get to that in a second. The, the origin behind it came from a sermon that we preached a couple of years ago, I think. It was called The Bible in Five Parts. And what we did with the sermon was we just took the Bible and we examined about the Bible by breaking it up and understanding it as if it was kind of an introduction to the Word of God. Before you even dig into the words, what is this book that is going to guide my life? The Bible has five divisions of the Old Testament. It has four divisions of the New Testament. It has three dispensations of relationship between God and man. It has two eras of time, B.C. and A.D., and it has one figure in the middle, one person about whom the whole Bible is written, that, of course, being Jesus Christ. That's the Bible in five parts. And then last year, we had this idea, and I think it was a sermon we both preached together on the same stage. It was evangelism in five minutes. I think the actual title like preaching the gospel in five minutes or less and Alex took the first half if you remember and he broke down the idea behind it how you're going to have various opportunities that are going to come your way and you need to be ready whenever the opportunity strikes to be able to evangelize you need to be ready whenever the moment comes your way to tell someone about Jesus however it comes across and however it it uh, the, the opportunity arises be ready to evangelize and not just to evangelize but do so in a in a moment where it's maybe a fleeting time period and then I stepped up and I tried to deliver what would be like a five-minute sermon 
with the idea being, if you're on an elevator, I guess this would be a slow elevator, and you have five minutes to get from the top floor to the bottom, and this is your five-minute chance, your opportunity to make your pitch, to tell this person why they need Jesus. If, at the very least, to convince this person to get off the elevator and walk with you more away from where they were going so they could hear more about the message of life ever after. You have five minutes. What can you say in five minutes? Well, as a matter of fact, I think you could say a lot, at very least to convince someone to hear more about the gospel in five minutes. But what if you only have five seconds? Well, clearly, you heard a second ago. It can be done. It could be done if you talk fast enough, and if you don't ramble, if you just cut to the meat of it, you can present to someone the fact that Jesus died and rose again, and that through baptism they die and rise again, so their sins can be washed away, and they can live with them forever. Yes, you can preach the gospel in five seconds, but that's not the sermon this morning. I'm sorry to bait and switch you. I'm not sorry to be a carny, but no, there's actually a different thing. It's the gospel in five seconds, because that's what you're going to have when you talk to people. As you talk to your neighbors and you talk to your friends, they're going to present to you their life. The more you get to know them, the more you'll get to know them. And they'll present to you various scenarios that they find themselves in. And those are opportunities for you. Those are seeds they're planting for you to water, to sprout a Christian potentially. And in the course of these conversations that you have with your neighbors, they will need for you the truth of a second something. Because there are a lot of second somethings that comes with the good news that you have to present to them about Jesus Christ. I have a simple sermon for you. As you can guess, there are five short parts, and then we'll be done. Each one of these is a second something that has to do with the gospel, starting with the second covenant. Preach to your neighbors when the opportunity arises the good news, the gospel of the second covenant. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 and look at verses 6 and 7. Hebrews 8, or you can just read it behind me, but your translation may vary, what have you. Look at Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7. The writer says, But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. That's a comparative word. More excellent than whom? Than Moses, the previous verse says. So Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by how he is the mediator of a better covenant, established upon better promises. And if that first covenant, or for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the, you might think here's our key word, second. And of course, second is, yeah, it's a key word to the sermon, but it's not really the key phrase. Because if you just take the phrase around which that word second is found, you're not really given a lot of information. Again, the end of verse number seven, then no place would have been sought for the second. Well, tell me about the first so that I can understand why I would need the second in the first place. And so for that, you go to verse six, and you get the real key point where it says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Not just another covenant, not just the second covenant, but a better covenant. The word better establishes there are two, better and original, not best or there would be three. No, just two, there's better. One is better than the other. There are two of them. There's a former and a latter. And based on this word better, there's a lesser and a greater. There's a weaker and a stronger. There's a less effective and a more effective. The good news of the second covenant is that the second one under which you and I live is better than the first. Now take your minds back to the era of the first covenant, to the era of the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. Let's just pretend you're an Israelite. 
You're living your life as best as you can. Well, let's be honest with ourselves. None of us are really, honestly, none of us are doing our best. We might say we are, but probably, best case scenario, we're trying. But probably we're not even trying. Best case, we're trying to try to do our best. All right? So you're trying to try to do your best, and along the way, you stumble. You make a mistake. You sin. It happens to all of us. And I mean that literally. It happens to all of us. But you're an Israelite. You're living under the first covenant, an agreement between you and God, a contract that was signed and sealed at Mount Sinai. And now you have broken that covenant. You have sinned against God. What do you do? Well, the law provides for you the template to follow. You take your very best lamb, the prize, choicest animal in your flock, which is valuable monetarily, even emotionally, and certainly in every other capacity as well. You take that best lamb. You go to the priest, you go to the altar, and you slit its throat, and you watch its blood drain out. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood, and it's been provided for you as a sacrifice for your sins, we learn in Leviticus. So you drain the life of that precious lamb, your best lamb, and God says, by so doing, I won't kill you for your sin. That's the gist of the contract. You kill this lamb for your sin. Here's the problem with that. God won't kill you, but that lamb's not saving you. You still have sin. Imagine this. You do exactly what the law says. You follow the commandment precisely to the letter, to the T, every dotting of an I. And as you're done, you wash the blood off your hands and the priest says, you did it perfectly. You nailed it. By the way, you're still a sinner. See you next week. I did it exactly right. I did exactly what was required. Yes, well, I'm sorry. The bad news is, the bad news of the first covenant is it can't do what you want it to do. It can't erase your past. It can't change the fact that you have sinned. But Jesus is the mediator of a second Another better covenant established on better promises. The promise of your sins removal. The promise of your sins wiping away. Now you can do exactly what Jesus says to do and He won't just not kill you. He'll save you too. He'll wash your sins away. Good news. Your sins can be undone. Your sins can be removed. Second, second. Go to John chapter 3. And notice a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus under the context of a second birth. I think the screen starts in verse 3. Yeah, but we're going to start in verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, because that's when he got off work. Mystery solved. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Master, we know that you're a teacher come from God, because no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. Now, let's just pause for a second and appreciate that Nicodemus is at least better than most Pharisees. Because many of the Pharisees actually saw the miracles of Jesus, witnessed him do supernatural deeds in the name of God, and they looked at it, they scoffed, they balked, and they said, well, he only casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He only does his power with the power of the devil. Though he's renouncing the devil as he does it, he's secretly working for the guy. They had such a hard heart, they could not accept what their eyes were clearly showing them. But Nicodemus is not like that. His heart's a little more soft. And other Pharisees like him are as well. And he says, no, we know you are a teacher come from God. And though Jesus is still in the beginning of his ministry, he has done a lot of teaching. He has made a name for himself already with what he has been teaching. And so when the opportunity comes for him to speak, Jesus immediately dives into what he's been teaching Unless you are born again, you cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, Jesus, where did the kingdom of God come from? Nicodemus didn't mention that. No, Jesus mentioned that. He's been mentioning that. 
He's been talking about nothing but the kingdom of God since he started his ministry. He's been talking and talking about the kingdom, which is what gained him the attraction and the fame and drew the attention of the Pharisees and brought him to Nicodemus, or Nicodemus to him, to say, okay, clearly you're a teacher of the kingdom, and clearly you're a teacher of God. So Jesus adds to his lesson something new, and he says, and you must be born again if you want to have anything to do with that kingdom. And Nicodemus, being a person who thinks very literally, and not understanding the grander spiritual metaphor Jesus is laying out, says what many people would do in that case. They would take Jesus literally. Lord, I'm 40 years old, Nicodemus might say. How can a man be born when he is already old? Can he a second time enter into his mother's womb and be born? That's insanity. A person can't do that. A person cannot be born again. I've been born, and now I've grown, and I'm aged and my mother has grown and been even more aged. How could she possibly give birth to me a second time? Medically, scientifically, rationally, it cannot be done. Well, of course not. Jesus isn't talking about that. And I think everyone in this room, we all agree, Jesus clearly is not talking about that. Nicodemus points out the absurdity of it with his question. A man cannot be born again when he's old physically through his mother's womb. So let's just put a little pin there because we're going to come back to that in about 12 seconds. Look at Jesus' response. He says, no, verily I say to you, verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have gotten into discussions. I've gotten into arguments. You might call them debates, but they were arguments about this text and about the application of this text as provided through the ministry of Jesus and the great commission of Jesus related directly to baptism into Jesus, a burial in water, for the remission of sins, the spiritual new birth. And I've talked about that with people who will come back to me and say, no, you misunderstood it. When Jesus was talking about being born again, and he talks about being born of water and spirit, that's not baptism, that's being born of your mother. That's, you know, when your mother's water breaks and she gives birth to you, that's water. And then later you're born of the spirit. Except that's literally Nicodemus' argument. And Jesus shoots it down. He was specifically talking about, no, 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 it's not a physical birth. It is another birth. It is a new birth. It is a second birth. We've all of us enjoyed the first, but I don't know how enjoyable it was, but we all of us had a first birth. We've all gone through it the one time, and that was a physical birth from your mother's womb, or if they cut her open, you know, a C-section, point stance, right? And the idea, just to, just to further shoot that idea down, it's not water, it's amniotic fluid. So let's not, even, let's not even go down that route, okay? We are so far off the rails, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. All right? That clearly is not Jesus' point. His point is to say, no, that was your first birth. I'm talking about your second birth. And that's why he goes on to say, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. But I'm talking about that which is born of the Spirit. A new, second, better, spiritual birth, which involves water and Spirit, the second birth does. That's the, the good news of the second birth is this. The good news of the second birth is you've already been born the one time. Now what have you done with that life? You've lived forever long you've lived. If it's 15 years or 51 years or whatever. You've been born the one time. What have you done with your life? Now you might be a swell person. You might be a good neighbor. You might be a, a regular church attendee. You might have a good job. You might have many degrees to your name. But what have you done spiritually with your life? Have you sinned? Don't answer that, because the answer is yes. We all have sinned. You have taken your life 
and you have wasted it in the eyes of God. He's not looking at your resume to decide whether you're guilty or innocent. He's looking at your spiritual life. He's not looking at whether or not you'd make a good employee. He says whether or not you're a good servant, and you haven't been, neither have I. We've all sinned in the sight of God. We've all taken our first life and squandered it. Good news, you get a second. You don't have to be born again physically. No, you go through a spiritual grave, a watery grave, and you're risen from that watery grave to get a second life, a second opportunity to live. And this one with sins washed away, where the blood of Jesus continually cleanses, 1 John chapter 1. That's the good news of the second birth. Third point, let's talk about the second coming. Go to Hebrews again, this time chapter 9. And let's consider a text of two verses, the first of which we have heard many times, and an okay point is made from it to the expense of making a great point. So look at Hebrews chapter 9, the last two verses of the text. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you just verse 27, and I'm going to read it the way that is often quoted or read, okay? The context of the way this verse is usually given is to make a proof text out of the fact that there's going to be a judgment at the end of life, at the end of time, okay? We all understand, well, I would assume, it's a fact. So if you don't know, I'll, I'll tell you later. It's a fact. There will be a judgment at the end of this life. So we understand that, and as a proof text for that, as a verse to pull out of its context to say, look here, the Bible says there'll be a judgment. Hebrews 9.27 is read like this. It's appointed unto man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And we put a, a beginning, a hard beginning, and a hard ending on it, and it's not. The verse starts with a dot, 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 and it ends with a dot, dot, dot. This is right in the middle of a thought, okay? It starts with the word and for crying out loud. And as it is appointed unto man wants to die. And after this, the judgment, dot, 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 verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This is not just a judgment day is coming text. This is also a take comfort in the second coming text. And don't even take that as the whole meaning of it because you have to take both of those ideas and put them together. Now, here's the way you put them together. Listen specifically to what you're reading in verse 27. The fact, the presumption, the understanding of your death is established in the first verse, 27. It is appointed unto man once to die. That life that you had, that you were born from your mother's womb, you begin physical life, you will have an expiration date. Assuming the Lord doesn't return in our lifetimes. Let's just set that aside. You will have an end point. You will have a final day. You will have a final breath that you will one day take. And that will be it. For some people it's younger. For some people it's older. Whenever it is, you'll have it. It is appointed for you. That doesn't mean God is waiting. Counting down the clocks. All right, I'm going to kill him in three, two, one. Lightning bolt. No. It just means God sees and knows. And for everybody, because sin is in the world, death is in the world, all shall die. Physically die. And after that will be judgment. Now, if you stop at verse 27, that's a bad news text. You know why? Because all have sinned. And without Christ, we're all barreling toward our doom. We are marching speedily toward our final day, after which we'll be judged for all of the sins that we've ever committed. That's a scary thought. God knows that. He sees all. He sees your beginning, he sees your end, and he sees how with every sin you are just picking up acceleration, picking up steam, barreling towards your conclusion. And what does he do in verse 28? He intercedes. 
he interjects. He stops. Verse 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. You are on your way to destruction. Wait! Let me wash those sins away before you get there. That's what God did through Christ. So now when you reach your death, now when you reach your death, you'll reach it as a Christian. Your sins will be washed. That means you won't have judgment. There'll be no judgment for you because judgment implies sentencing of guilt and condemnation. No, that's the end of verse 28. He will appear the second time. The first time was when he came, being born of Mary, to intercede and to take care of your sins. Then he went back up to heaven. Now he will appear the second time for salvation. The second coming is for salvation. Wait, I thought the first coming was for salvation. It was. The first coming was for your sins being washed away. The second one will save you from judgment. Because there's a point on demand everybody to die, and after that, the judgment. And that's why Jesus came. So that you don't have to worry about that. Now you can just hear, enter in. Oh Lord, why will I get to enter in? Because when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. He won't tell you all the times when you didn't clothe him, all the times you didn't feed him. No, this is what you did. The good, the praiseworthy, the servitude enter in. But those who don't take advantage of the first coming, I have bad news. There's a judgment day coming. Lord, why are we being cast away from you? Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. But what about all those times I did good? You did not feed me. You weren't washed in the blood. Your sins weren't taken away. So now you're held accountable. But good news. He's coming that second time to take you, the, ch the child of God, to take you, the Christian, away from hearing that judgment, away from hearing condemnation, instead to enter in. That's the good news of his second coming. I got two more than I'm done. And it's the gospel, look at Revelation 2, 10 and 11, of the second death. The gospel of the, the good news, good news, there's a second death. Well, how is this good news? Well, let's just read the context. Look at Revelation 2, the, the end of which is one we're very familiar with. It's a little section of the verse we always hold out to say, this is why you should be faithful, because this verse says so. Okay, fine, but boy, the more you read, the better it gets. Look at Revelation 2, starting at the beginning of verse 10. Fear none of the things that you will suffer. Behold, I will reveal to you your suffering. The devil will cast some of you into prison, and you'll be tried, and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, the King James says. Be thou faithful even to the point of death. Be thou faithful even if being faithful kills you. And I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Now look at verse 11. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'll find if you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has seven messages to seven churches. And at the end of each message, he offers this little, this little word of invitation, this little soliloquy of, of invitation. And it's different for every church. And it's different in a way that it ties in with the message to that particular church. It's, it's specific. So this one, he just got through saying, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you life. So that's on the master's mind in verse 11. Hear what the Spirit says. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. But Lord... Is death going to hurt me or not? Because you're saying in verse 10, I'll, I'll die. I'll be faithful till I die. But in verse 11, you say I won't be hurt in death. That's a second death. If you don't have Jesus Christ, I have bad news twice for you. Bad news number one, you're going to die. Bad news number two, you're going to die again. 
Death number one comes when your soul separates from its body. It's bad for you because it's a soul that's not saved. Then comes the judgment, the text we already read. And then that soul that is separated from its body in death will be separated from its creator in eternity. That's a second death. But if you have Jesus Christ, I have good news for you. The good news of the second death is you never have to see it. The first is enough. Everybody's going to die the first time. And then that's it. You go to sleep and you wait for the master to wake you up. And you live forevermore. He that overcomes. What's overcoming in this text? Be faithful even if it kills you. Yeah, okay, fine. It's great. It's wonderful. It happens. When a person is 97, 107, whatever years old, and they've been faithful all their lives, and they just drift away to pleasant, peaceful, spiritual sleep. It's wonderful when it happens. Wasn't happening here, though. Here they were being beheaded. They were being burned alive. They are being fed to lions. They were being brutally executed, being watched by the Christian who was next up. I'm watching him die, and I'm next. And when I march up there, I hear the question that he was asked, that he died for. Now it's asked of me. And that question is simply this, as there's a blade poked right here, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? And if you answer yes, he shoves the butt of his sword and off with your head. And if you answer no, hey, you answer no, you live for a few more years, but it's, you're going to die. You, you can stay off execution for a little while, but you will die, and then you will die again. But if you answer yes, I am a Christian, faithful, even if it kills me, well, he'll kill you, but you'll never die again. You'll live forevermore. That's the good news of the second death. Last one. Go to the text that was read to us, Acts chapter 8. Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel to them. Now this last point, the last point in the sermon, this is for those who are not children of God. Well, sorry, this is for the who are children of God, specifically for Christians. Philip goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel to them. Many believe and are baptized. Among that number, as you heard in the reading, was Simon, a former con man, so-called former sorcerer, trickster, a, a, a liar manipulator, someone who used you know, uh, deception to gain fame and, and perhaps even, probably even profit. And now he has believed and been baptized, the Bible specifically says in Acts 8. A believer who's baptized is a Christian, according to my master, Mark 16, 16. So here is Simon, the former sorcerer. Here is Simon, the former con man, becomes a Christian. Meanwhile, Peter and John, two apostles, come to town. They come to town because apostles have the power to distribute and pass on miraculous gifts. So they come to town to distribute to the town of Samaria, these new Christians, their miraculous gifts. It's a whole first century thing, not relevant. But meanwhile, Simon, this former sorcerer, this former con man, falls back into his old habits. I mean, the guy just became a Christian. You know, old habits die hard. He sees Peter distributing miraculous gifts, and he gets an idea. And he goes to Peter and John, and he offers them money. And he says, I'll give you money if you give me the power to lay hands on people and give them miracles. Because, I mean, who knows what kind of, not good, but who knows what kind of profits I could make. It's probably what's on his mind. That's clearly his thought process based on what he's, what he's told. So look at the text, Acts 8, verse 20. Peter says to him, your money perish with you. You want to bribe me? Your money be condemned with you, brother Simon. You want to bribe an apostle? Your money go to hell with you, brother Simon. That's a harsh statement. That's Peter's opening remark. Your money perish with you. Because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You don't have part or lot in this matter. This is not your business. This is apostolic business. 
Your heart is not right in the sight of God. So what must he do? Verse 22. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, brother Simon, and pray God for the thoughts of your heart to be forgiven you. Verse 23. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness, brother Simon, and in the shackles of sin, bonds of iniquity. You have reattached yourself, reaffixed yourself to the taskmaster Satan. Break free of those chains again through repentance and prayer, brother Simon. Here's the good news of the second chance. When you sin, you get one. See, the bad news would be this. The bad news would be, if there was a bad news, you obey the gospel. You took advantage of your first chance to become saved. You took advantage of it. You were obey obedient to the gospel. Great. Oh no, did you mess up? Sorry, you only get one. That would be bad news. That's not the message. The good news is you get one. You get a second chance. You messed up as you did and I will and all of us have. You messed up. Repent and start over again. Well, I just started over. Yep, repent and start over again. I got news for you. Tomorrow, you'll probably have to do it again. And, and you know, as you grow and mature, it may take a couple of days before you get to the next sin. And then you'll have to start over again through repentance and prayer. That's your second chance. The good news is it's not just, even better news, it's not just two chances. You get three, four, five, fifty, a thousand. Because as long as you stay penitent, as long as you keep walking in the light, and it looks like this, but you're heading in the right direction, 1 John 1, 7, your sins will be covered, washed, cleansed. It's amazing that it's Peter who says this. I only get, do I only get two chances? It's just, just one second chance? Peter is the one who says, repent and be forgiven. It was Peter who said to the Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And even Peter only had seven. He had five more than two. Seven times, and Jesus said, no, Peter, 70 times seven. There's no limit to the amount of times you forgive because there's no limit to the amount of times the heart of God forgives. Good news. Have you messed up, Christian, since you obeyed the gospel? Good news, you get a second chance. Maybe you're on your 22nd, maybe you're on your 200s. It's fine. You get another one. You're not dead yet. You can keep being forgiven as you walk in the light. That's the gospel in five seconds. It's got a second covenant. It has a second birth. It preaches a second coming. It talks about the second death. And it offers you a second chance. Now let me put the burden on you, listener. Now it's your turn. For you, the clock is ticking. And I don't know how much time you have left. You don't know how much time you have left. But one day your time will run out. Have you taken advantage of the gospel of the second chance? Or the gospel of the second birth to become part of, through the new covenant, a second life in Jesus Christ. If you have it, now is your opportunity because it may be your last opportunity. Repent and be baptized. Become a Christian. If you are and you've fallen away, repent and pray. And we'll pray for you because we love you and want you to be righteous with God again. Let us know how we can help you right now. Please come as we stand and sing.